Storytelling from a three-decade friendship in television sports with the ultra-talented, incredibly versatile Mike Tirico of NBC. Our conversation was what you might call far-flung. We had a lot to cover. We had a lot of laughs, and we veered way beyond the obvious, football. Talked about the incredible breadth of unforgettable moments that Mike has broadcast from maybe golf's ultimate mental meltdown, the craziest finish in Kentucky Derby history, a total Serena shocker, and the final game in the career of Kobe Bryant. God rest his soul, Kobe's last game was a game that it was uh, me, Hubie, and Lisa Salters got to call in LA. And Kobe sat with us for a half hour. Ed Fibershoff was our producer. Eddie had covered Kobe all the way back in his uh, early days. Uh, we sat with with Kobe for like 25 to 30 minutes and talked about career, life, everything else. And he really, he he said, I don't know what I have in me tonight. I don't, you know. And he ended up having an incredible game that, you know, you were reminded the mentality of the athlete and their mental approach to it. He knew exactly how much he had in the tank. And if he got going, he could he could get to what that very 50, last drop. He had 50 or 60 in the tank, right? What he? Yes, he did. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Hubie said, you know, I, I, had a, I, had a, I had a dream. I was shaving. I remembered my dream. I, 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 thought, I thought Kobe could have like a 50, 60-point kind of game. And he threw that out like in the first quarter. And Kobe's going through. I told you, I told you. It was it was one of those. But it's the athletes, the, the athletes who are so smart, and mm-hmm. that's what I've learned to appreciate about LeBron. You talk to LeBron about basketball. Oh my gosh, it, it's a master class. He sees so much. That's why he's an unbelievable assist guy and rebounder, and he's made so many teams so much better over the years. And that's what uh, I feel so fortunate is not just be able to call the events that these folks have been involved with but to hear what makes them so great. There's a lot more ahead and the privilege of covering some of the greatest sports legends of all time. Also, there were some surprising turns in our conversation, like the search for Kilbourne. We talked plenty about our 25 years working together at ESPN ABC, where of course Mike was the voice of Monday Night Football, covered college sports, golf, tennis, hosted World Cups, and he reminded me we actually hosted SportsCenter together a few times, and he's got a story he loves to tell about that. Of course, at NBC Sports since 2016, Mike has done everything. He's called NFL games, hosted Football Night in America, covered the Triple Crown races, the Stanley Cup, among other things, and of course is now the primetime host for the Winter and Summer Olympics. This was great fun. We got to talk about why we're so grateful getting to do the thing we love to do. Caught up with Mike in America's most famous town for golf. And now Mike Tarico reporting from Augusta, which is a fabled place for all <laughs> who love and respect the sport of golf as you do. So thank you for taking time, my old friend, and your master's prep to join us here. I guess maybe I'm doing you a favor because this is your quarantine day in Augusta, so I'm giving you a way to kill an hour as you as you sit in that lovely hotel room. Listen, this might seem remedial for you, but for someone yeah. that has a, a love and a passion and a tremendous feel for the sport of golf, doing what you've done so well for so many years, to someone who doesn't have that stuff, describe right. the magic of that place and the magic of the sport of golf 
from an announcer's perspective. Why does sure. it stir your blood so deeply? Yeah, so, so, so let's just start with the basic separation. The four majors, the other three happen in rotating locations. So the Open, the British Open, the Open Championship, however you want to refer to it, rotates around what's called the Rota, nine different courses in the, in the British Isles. The U.S. Open, as we know, some years at Pebble Beach, some years Shinnecock, Beth Page, Black, Oakmont, Oakland Hills, moves all over the country, right? Uh, Torrey Pines this year. The PGA Championship, same. Great courses around the U.S. This is the one of the four majors that comes back to the same place. So it starts there. Second, it's the timing of it. It is April. It's springtime in Georgia. And absent your pollen allergies, there's no place better to be. I mean, everything is just Do you have allergies? Blooming. Do you have allergies to the flowers there? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit. I'm not bad. Some people really get knocked out with the allergies. The pollen is so thick mm. and heavy because the blooming, it just, it just everything explodes uh, in, in this like, couple of week stretch of early April. So... <laughs> What, when you set, and this is honestly, it's pre-climate change because now it's warmer in the Northeast and the Midwest in April and late March than it used to be. Uh, but in, in the days where you're used to cold weather this time of year, you're just getting that first 55 degree day, 65 degree day. You turn on Augusta and it looks amazing. I always challenge people when they come here, if they're lucky enough to be a guest in any way or a patron who comes to the event, Go, go find, go find a cigarette butt, go find a piece of trash, go find anything out of place. And you almost never can. It is the most pristine, beautifully landscaped and manicured property. So even if you're not a softy for just the visuals, this place is the most beautiful, breathtaking, captivating place. And, and then I think the last part is the shots that happen here. Uh, over and over. It's the first major of the year. So we've waited eight months, usually since the end of the major championship golf season. So there's pressure on the players. It's your chance to make history. And the best players, Nicholas Palmer, Player, Woods, Watson, they've all won here. They've all hit memorable shots, going back to Sneed and Gene Sarazen. So it's all of that in one big place. And when you come here, you enter through the gates and it just feels different. There is a reverence to the history for the history. Uh, there's an importance of what has happened here over time. Uh, there's the feeling that when you come here, you have a chance to be remembered forever for what you do. Bubba Watson hit a shot from way right of the 10th hole in a playoff that is forever talked about. So whenever anybody comes to the Masters, they walk down by 10. I think Bubba hit it here. No, it was here. No, he hooked it around this tree. So those things last. That doesn't happen at the other golf tournaments in the same way. So all of that together uh, makes it special. And the thing I would say, Chris, for people, it's hard to get here as a player, a caddy, a member of the media, a member or an invited guest. But once you get here, you're treated so well. Uh, there's no sporting event where the media is treated better, the players, anything else. And you come here, if you're lucky enough to come here as a guest, uh, of, of a member and play, you're, you're not treated any better anywhere else in the world. So it really is the finest of everything when you get here. And that's why I think when we all get a chance to come back, you, you feel you feel like it's a special week. You really do.
I've never been to the Masters. It's the biggest oh. sporting event in the world. I've never been, and I've had a chance. I won a, a charity silent auction a couple of times. I was all set up to go, couldn't make it. One of these years, I'll, I'll have to I'll have to experience that because even though I don't feel golf in that way, I, I will never feel the same about golf as I do about tennis or other sports, I think I would get drawn in by just the things you described. And so I, I look forward to doing that at some point. And I won't drink a mint julep because that's a waste of beautiful bourbon, but I'm going to enjoy the rest of the whole master's experience. I so, think. <laughs> so I will, I will say that right to your heart and having covered it with you for five years, I know what, what a, what a fondness and affection you have for the all England club for Wimbledon. Very, very similar uh, to the point that they are, uh, private clubs that have uh, a very special membership and they open their doors for the fortnight for two weeks at Wimbledon for a week plus here now with the drive chip and putt for the kids and the women's amateur that happens the Saturday before the masters. Now uh, they open their doors for 10 days in the, in the Augusta's case now for the rest of the world. And when somebody competes, it's a little different. As you know, the players have a different feel when they walk onto the grounds of the all England club, uh, they come out of that tunnel to the left of your great bunker and they, and they walk onto center court. It's the same feeling when the players walk down from the clubhouse to the first tee at Augusta. And the clubs have actually shared uh, uh, practices, hosted each other uh, during their events as well, some members from the clubs. So they know and recognize each other's similarities. And I, I think if you got here, you would feel those Wimbledon kind of vibes that you get when yeah. you go to the all England club. Uh, I think you're right. The difference is one is tennis and one is golf and golf for me is a love hate relationship. Uh, You know, I, I I play it badly. I think you have to be a a decent or at least an enthusiastic golfer to announce it. It's not true of other sports. You don't have to have played competitive Mm. basketball to call a basketball game or a football game. I think to, to, it helps in tennis for sure that, that I played tennis golf. I'm not nearly a good enough golfer or experienced enough golfer. I could never do what you do and the, and the best golf announcers do. So I, I don't even try to venture into that world. In fact, I came across my golf bag here. It's in the laundry room. It's kind of tucked oh. behind the dryer. <laughs> I, I saw it the other day. It's got an inch thick cake of dust on it. That's how long I've been retired from golf. I kind of get, I wrestle it. It weighs 150 pounds. Obviously, I've got six or seven more clubs than you're allowed to have, three pairs of shoes, a thousand balls because I lose so many during a round. I'm going to get it out and and sort of like gently unretire on the driving yes. range. But but yes. I, we have never played golf together, which is your loss because you could have taken money from me. But but I've seen you play golf. <laughs> oh no, not at the Jimmy V, have you? Not at the Jimmy V, which I'm sure you did. But I remember. This is like one of those, like, why do you remember stupid It's not going to be a terror. That can make me look worse than I already made my, myself look. No, <laughs> I'm thinking, I, 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 uh, unless, uh, unless, I, unless I imagine this, didn't you do a piece in Cincinnati playing golf yes. with Rafa? Yes, I there did, but go. it only concealed. I only had, we didn't play a full round. We hit some shots, we hit some drives, and, right. and I actually didn't choke. See, at the Jimmy V, which yes. you played and enjoyed, Charles Barkley brought his entire gallery to my tee box off of their green when they were adjacent. I, Mike, I melted down. I can now describe choking in a way that I never could have before. Because it was the worst choking experience, athletic or otherwise, of my life. <laughs> He, he falls on the ground laughing with a thousand people because I skull a, sh- a tee shot that gets a foot off the ground, hits off, bounces off the ball cleaner, goes so, and, and my group is mortified. I have to like try to play that off. You put on that brave face, <laughs> <laughs> but you're dying inside. The worst. You're dying. You're the, choked the worst. so badly. I mean, 
that event, that, that event in its heyday, it, it's funny because I was telling people about uh, watching the NCAA tournament, right? And uh, watching teams and Cinderella's and all that. And now my son's 20, our daughter's, you know, she's a teenager. She's in college now. So, so I've got two kids who have experienced the tournament and love the tournament for growing up with it. And I'm kind of taking them back to, well, when did the tournament really take off, right? And uh, you start talking about the Magic and Larry Bird game in 79. You realize, oh, my God, how long ago is that? And we started talking about the Jimmy V game and the V Foundation and how all of us um, really had a wonderful time. And it, I just started telling someone, I don't think it was the kids, just the stories about Jimmy V yeah. uh, in, in his last couple of years working in Bristol. And you did a lot of those studio shows. John Saunders did. I was doing more radio. I was doing, I'll never forget V's last night in Connecticut. He felt really good after the show, came up to the newsroom, hung in the back of the old newsroom at ESPN with, when you stepped up to the newsroom, it was like on a, that one step up for all the cubicles, right? V stood in the back and held court with Saunders. And I was doing the 2.30 a.m. live sports center with Chris Myers, half hour at that time. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it may have been the worst show I've ever done. Because all we did from 12 <laughs> o'clock when, when they came up until 1.32 was listen to V tell stories. And of all the good people we've been around, uh, nobody captivated the room and told stories like Falvano. And that's why the Jimmy V uh, Celebrity Golf Classic after he passed in Raleigh was one of the most enjoyable weekends. Because it truly, Chris, it's like one of those rare things that actually was in the spirit of the person. Somebody says, man, let's do this in the spirit of so-and-so. That weekend was in the spirit of Jimmy V, and that's uh, some of the, some of my most enjoyable memories over time. Notwithstanding, you shanking one off the off the tee with Joe. Well, I, I, you, you got me smiling thinking about those memories. I mean, people will always remember the speech at the ESPYS. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. But we saw it on a nightly basis how inspiring Jimmy was because what you just described is a great memory. He was in agony as that was happening. You just know that he was. We saw it. In Bristol, I saw it at the last Final Four, right. sadly, that he covered, and the pain was unbelievable in his back, and, and he, he was managing that and still being the life of the party, still bringing the great energy. And I, I think that that's what's such a treasure, Mike, about what we've been lucky enough to do for a long time, and I've known you for 30 years, is working with these personalities, working with these analysts. I think you share my joy in, in working with those folks, building chemistry on and off the air, and, and the characters that you've worked with, the, I'm just going to throw a few names out there. This okay. just scratches the surface, but not only are they great analysts, great at their job, but the characters as human beings, yeah. Lee Corso, Hebe Brown, Doug Flutie, Nick Faldo, Curtis Strange, all the golf guys, John Gruden, Johnny Mack in tennis, among others, Len Elmore, Tony Dungy. I mean, we haven't, we'll get to the soccer guys at the World Cups, but that, that <laughs> roster of people that you've gotten yeah. a chance to work with, to bring out the best in, and then just to, to, to learn from them life lessons. I know you don't take that for granted. Not, not, not at all. And loved every second of it. Uh, it, it it's so funny. I, so I was driving from Florida up to, up to Augusta and I called Carl rabbits because we we're coming up on opening day baseball and, you know, played hundreds of rounds of golf with Ravi over the years when we were living in Connecticut, he was working baseball tonight or the late night sports center uh, around the same time, our kids were about the same age. So we'd get out and play golf at nine in the morning off, no sleep and play in the afternoon. And so we played a ton of golf together and all of the people at sports center, 
like you, like Saunders, like Linda, like Levy, uh, Dan Patrick, Keith, Jack Edwards, doing some hockey. I've uh, I've run across Jack Edwards now more than a few times. He's now the TV voice of the Bruins. And it's like reminds me of the great story. Jack would always, everybody had their quirks of what they did at Sports Center, right? Gary Miller would take seven seconds to put his makeup on. He would tuck, <laughs> he would tuck the tail of his earpiece into his pocket. He'd like walk down on the set with papers everywhere. By the way, it looked, it looked like he took seven seconds to do it. <laughs> <laughs> He'd plug his IFB in, do this with makeup real quick, and do like a great baseball tonight by an hour with Peter, for an hour with Peter Gammons. Jack would always bring a see-through clipboard uh, to the set. He'd keep his rundown on there, whatever notes. Jack was super organized. Jack brought that from local TV. And the earpiece that we all have is called an IFB. Right. So Jack had printed in large letters, like on the back of it, like this, no IFB. And to this day, for some reason, I remember that. So I saw Jack I'm like, do you still have your no IFB clipboard? He's like, how do you remember that? But like all those characters at SportsCenter, I think, and I, I'm curious how you feel. It prepared me for all the characters and all these other sports, you know, because you had uh, the straight guy, the funny guy, the the different person you were working with and their different sensibilities. Uh, we do an NBA, we do a sports center. Chris Myers always wanted the NBA highlights. I wanted the NHL highlights. We would trade highlights. Like if, if I had like the Lakers game, Chris was like, hey, uh, what would you, can, I'll give you two, like the Kings and the Canucks here and, and the Sharks. If, if you want to slide me over like the Sacramento Clippers. Guy. You guys were swapping did, highlights there? Like, we, we would swap highlights and like, hey, later in the show, when we get down to like the D's, maybe, maybe we can just flip on. Did I'll you tell the director you're going to do this? I mean, <laughs> we, we did. We, 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 we did tell the producer and the director. But, but like all, all that stuff, everybody's different quirks, personalities, I think prepared both of us for the large group of people that we work with as analysts. And it has been, like, like you said, one of the great thrills for me. Um, like Hubie the all-time ultimate teacher, Gruden, the ultimate coach. John just wanted another team to coach. And our Monday Night Football group, from director and producer on down to production assistant, he coached all of us up. And, and we all got a master's in football being around John. Jaws, the, the quarterback position. I, there are more things that I look at the quarterback position still today that have been just drilled into my head from Jaws. Doug Flutie, who wasn't a by the numbers guy. He's just a feel guy. You know, the way he played, ran around, made stuff happen. That's, that's Doug. I, I love the fact that we've been able to get to be really close with all of those different types of people. And that's why we love sports. We love sports because of the great people. And usually the analysts are the really good or the best at what they do and getting the chance to hear how they tick, to see what they do. And then to get them to trust us a little bit that we're not going to bury them with something that's unfair. We're going to ask them an honest question. We're going to bring out the best in them uh, for the viewers. Uh, that, To me, that's been the most fun of, of what we get the chance to do on a regular basis. All the analysts you work with in all the sports, I'd like to ask you to rank them first to worst now. And uh, I think the listeners would enjoy that. Uh, no, I, <laughs> I mean, some of the stuff, I mean, not everybody has been – a joy to work with. Not everyone has been brilliant and wise and effective and efficient. We, we know that, but that's just part of the fun too. You just roll with it. I mean, we're right. on this topic, so I'll, I'll jump uh, to, to the World Cup in South Africa, which for us, <laughs> I, we share the idea this was a, a career highlight. I mean, to be able to no doubt. 
be a part of hosting that event. That's a country that meant a lot to me. It's a sport that meant a lot to me. And the coverage was just top shelf. Uh, so proud of everybody. But the characters, Mike, that we get to share the oh, set gosh. with who come to it, these are global <laughs> rock stars. You know, yes. Rude Hullett, Steve McManaman, Jurgen Klinsmann. I mean, Alexi Lalas, the, the, the token American on that set. But all this, <laughs> these guys who brought to the set a completely different sensibility on the global sport. They're, they're rock stars, rich people in their own right. And now you got to make it kind of, and by the way, language is sometimes, it's not their first language, English. So That's the you key. had to make it all kind of work and you had no time before or right. between halves of a World Cup game. But it's still that that sort of like tap dance on the high wire was, was so much fun. I, I will never forget kind of those moments on the set and off the set at the World Cup. From from the very beginning to the very end, <clears throat> that that is right up there for every part of it with one of the best professional experiences that I have ever or will ever have. Um, lifelong friendships out of the group. But, you know, it, you, you were far more versed in soccer, far more comfortable with the sport. For me, it was somewhat new. Bob Lee, obviously with us, has, you know, he carried the flag for soccer at ESPN for generations, right? Going back to the very start, an MLS thing. So for me, it certainly was kind of tiptoeing through doing something new. I'll, I'll never forget, I mean, two of the people who become closest, true, close, close personal friends, Julie Foudy and her husband, Ian. Right. And uh, we vacationed with them. We, we are in great touch with them. We're on the line after we arrive uh, with our passports, getting our credentials. And Julie's in front of me. And I'd been at like an event or two with her and, and kind of knew her and she kind of knew me. But we didn't really didn't know each other. So we're talking. And Julie had had a, uh, their second child a few years, uh, just, or maybe a year or so before that. So, so we're just chatting. And I said, well, so what's your role? And she said, well, I'm doing a lot of hosting stuff here, which she had never done before. Right. And I said, well, I'm the really first time for me doing soccer. It's like, okay, here's our pack. When you're going to ask the stupid question, we can ask each other. Right. And so that, that developed like a great friendship from the start there. And then I kept remember, I remember asking Julie, I'm like, boy, everybody's personality here seems really big. Like, no, no, they're, they're the, if they walk through their country, if they walk in that stadium, you'll see people will flock to them. And it was true. And the band came together. I don't know how. Or I know why. they shared the ball somehow, all the time. They they like, they all bought into this is a big event, and this is not about me. It's about all of us, and in their own unique ways and personalities, uh, they they made it an experience of a lifetime. They they really really did. I I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you feel the same way about that because uh, I've got a, I bought some art down there. Uh, I've got a couple of pictures. And I see those, and I fondly remember 35, 36 of, of the best days on the road covered sports that I will ever have, no doubt. People get surprised. It's 37 days in one hotel room, so there, there's that. But you don't care because the, the momentum of the event builds. And I tell you, I, if you're lucky enough to do this for a long time, you can have a handful of out-of-body experiences. And for me, standing on a platform at the top of our scaffolding, we had this giant set, yeah. but we went outside of that building to, to look across at the stadium and bring right. the World Cup final on the air. I would never uh, presume <clears throat> to call it. I don't feel soccer from birth in the way that our, the veteran mm. legendary soccer match callers do. So that's not a job for me. I would always yield that. But to be able to be a part of the coverage and just to say, at heart, we are all Africans. 
because that's where humanity was born. Yeah, and just to right, kind of bring right. bring the event on the air and just to be a part of it, I'll, I'll never forget it. Now, Brazil and, and, is the and next- to your point, I'm, yeah, right, to your point that, that in Brazil, yeah. uh, I had the chance to do that in 2014. Right. And it's funny that you said that because it's not often that we remember like one specific moment in uh, a pregame show or a postgame show or things like that. It's the collective experience. But I do remember grinding and I, I, I pay great respect to you. Like nobody gets a show on the air better than Chris Fowler. And I've learned <laughs> so you. much from watching you over the years. Like you, you, you grind on every single word to get it just right to get on the air. And I remember grinding to just trying to figure out the right ways to phrase the words before throwing to Ian Dark for the start of the 2014 World Cup final, the final match. And <clears throat> it was trying to encapsulate that you at home are joined by a couple of billion people on every corner of the world doing this right now. You're about to watch the World Cup final. And it was just one of those moments that I remember. I remember, hey, guys, look, you can do whatever you want time-wise. Just make sure I've had 15 seconds so I can kind of deliver this the right way because I've been thinking about it for a while. And um, you're right. There was a power to that that was just different than the other stuff because Chris, I, I didn't realize it until the world cup was in the U S and then especially South Africa, that experience. And then Rio, um, how no event stops the world like that. Yeah. It stops the world. And you, you know, from, from Brazil, when, <laughs> when Brazil played that, uh, that, Ill, that ill-fated game against Germany, I was um, in the stands, it, it, man. I was a fan. You were there, right? I, do, I, 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 I would I, go ahead, but I, that, that is one oh. of those things that if I were to mine the memories and really think about things that I witnessed in person, um, the shocking way that game unfolded from the celebratory euphoric pregame, I mean, 70,000 people and Belarusante <laughs> singing the national anthem. And then they got buried in the I first mean, half. Yeah. Buried in the first few <clears throat> minutes. I mean, it was yeah, seven right. one, the fans went from being shocked to outrage, to just at the end, just laughing and, and just cheering Germany because they recognized the greatness of that display. I still get chills thinking about it, but I didn't mean to cut you off. That, when you no, brought no, that no. up, though, that's just a, that's a, it's an incredibly powerful memory, lucky enough to have as a fan because I wasn't right. able to cover that tournament because Wimbledon conflicted, but I flew down there to be, a, be there as a fan, and wow, I, unforgettable. So, so because of that, and then I'm hosting, so we're sitting in our set, uh, Avenida Atlantica in Rio is right there. The ocean's right there. This boulevard that had just become this incredible spot. Our, our kids came down for a few days. They still talk about watching the U.S. play while sitting on the beach in Rio, being able to watch on the big screen because they set up a big screen on the beach. And that became like the centerpiece for where everybody, that was like the identifying point for people of watching. It was like watching people in Times Square at New Year's Eve. You tune in to watch people watching the match on the beach. Uh, so what struck me, and I'll never forget this, the game started around 5 o'clock local time. I'm maybe missing by an hour. <clears throat> the whole country shut down. And, you know, we say, oh, yeah, the whole city shut down. No, no, no. No. The subway <laughs> shop, you, two, two doors down, shut down. Everything shut down. This boulevard, one of the most busy thoroughfares in the country, not a car. This unbelievable rainstorm came through in Rio. The game was not played in Rio, as you said. It was like the thunder from the gods, and it was pouring so much so that it knocked out the power in our studio. 
So Alexi Lawless was with me. We had to do halftime from the, quote, panic room from the Men in Blazers. That was the only place we could get a camera and lights. So the halftime of that, I have it on tape. It, it's me and Alexi seriously in the closet. It's like four by eight this room, room, right? I mean, <laughs> exactly. It's like it's, like, it's just one of those things you'll you'll never forget. But it was it was that true like sign from above that this was a a moment that was different than all the others. But that's the power of the World Cup. I think that's that's our our point here and the shared experience, the people. There's power in sports and. Uh, it's different nations, different things bring that power. And that was one of those moments that uh, reminded me of the global power of the World Cup as an event and of soccer as a sport. Beautifully said. Crushing blow to lose the rights to that, I have to say. Um, although Qatar doesn't quite carry the magic of the places we've talked about. <laughs> hey, the true highlight of the, the World Cup in Brazil, though, I think came when we were hanging out in the bar of one of the lobby hotels there, the, the Copacabana Beach. And my wife, Jennifer, had the idea... You brought back the the old days of Sports Center. Why not text her old friend, long lost Craig Kilborn? Because <laughs> we had we had we weren't sure what happened to Craig. He kind of went away, went underground, and we hadn't heard from him. And it's one of those after a couple of drinks, and you're you're kind of euphoric to be there. She has the idea, and lo and behold, you do it, and he responds. Out of, I mean, from <laughs> the other world where he'd been spending the last few years, and. It follows with connect in touch, follow him now on Instagram. And uh -huh. every day, every day there's something good. There's Craig enjoying, enjoying life. But enjoying the picture that he sent you, the picture that he texted, not only did he text, but he oh, texted you a picture, which was a precursor of his genius Instagram feed where he's very much yes. in character, this kind of yes. like cocktail yes. swirling <laughs> Renaissance man. Here we are in freaking Rio. And, That's right. And Craig Kilborn emerges from a secrecy to like send oh. you this text of enjoying a cocktail. And you you were so you came and knocked. We had, we had parted ways. The night was <laughs> over. You came down the hallway, knocked on the door. Like, I got to see a picture this. from Kilborn. You killed <laughs> That's right. And that that was uh, that, that's the funny part, I think, for all of us over time is. We were we were there, and you're still there at ESPN, obviously. We were there at such a really cool time because of the talent of the people. When you think about the talent of the people that were there, and uh, I mentioned a bunch of names before, and you can go on and on. We just had so many really unique, cool, talented people at a time when ESPN had the rights to all the major sports and college sports were becoming a bigger deal. And <clears throat> ESPN was no longer... Uh, Nice try, the guys on cable, uh, compared to the network sports, uh, the networks covering sports, excuse me. It, it became a real power in the industry, which it has remained for quite some time. Uh, but to share those experiences with Craig, and you look at Rich Eisen now, and you know, I pop on Good Morning America, you see Robin, you're on, you're driving, you're going around Sirius XM, and you hear Charlie Steiner doing the Dodgers games. It's like every, everybody's everywhere. And it was, uh, it, it was one of those uh, step back moments. I, I text Chris Myers during the football season too. I'm sitting there watching NFL games and here's Chris who loved the NFL and was a, an exceptional reporter when he was in the LA bureau and uh, then came and did sports center. And uh, we did the two 30 AM together. Uh, did you know, I did not know. No, the I whole did not know that. I, uh... Oh, that is wild, wild and wacky stuff. <laughs> we got away with so much stuff. <laughs> um, and I see, I see Chris doing the NFL game. Speaking of getting away with, 
So one of my all-time favorite sports center memories includes you. So uh, like in, in the summer, right? In the summer, there was the rotation. The six o'clock, the early sports center was Bob Lee and Charlie Steiner and Robin Roberts for the most part. And Dan and Keith would do the 11 so on. So both, both Chris, Chris and I, we, we had moved on to do, you know, you're doing game day. I'm doing some games, college football studios, some golf, a bunch of different stuff. But you had to fill out the schedule sometimes, right? So there were these famous Bristol days where you show up in the building for a little bit, maybe work. Sometimes you don't need to. But sometimes we'd end up on the air. So we end up on a 6 o'clock sports center. Maybe it was 7 o'clock. I don't know. In August. <laughs> the dog days. It was kind of you can get away with stuff, right? Because we're not on this show on a regular basis. We'll just kind of have some fun. And we, we, were, we were sarcastic. We were tongue-in-cheek for a majority of an insignificant day in sports, including Fowler getting the highlights of the Pirates playing the Cubs a very meaningless baseball game and just kind of giving you the Brian Williams side look shoulder into the camera, kind of like this <laughs> 162 games on the baseball schedule and the pirates and Cubs played one of them too. And that was it <laughs> just like deadpan. Boom. It was like, it was in the spirit of the late great Tom Bees. It was like, I'd like to think that I was channeling one of the all-time great anchors. Maybe I was just being lazy or (laughs) a total lack of inspiration. By the way, as we record this, Pirates and Cubs are playing opening day, so it's not not insignificant game today. No, you just had that feeling, though, and you're right. It was two things about that. One, you felt like you could get away with more because there was less scrutiny, and and also— what you describe is a different climate. I don't want to sound like two old guys. Back in our day of Sports Center, there's right. only two buildings on the <laughs> campus, and we didn't have an electronic teleprompter. But it was different, Mike. Yes. So the personalities that you named and the thing about the climate there, we both came in as very young guys. You're doing Sports Center I mean, a few years out of college. Right. I had done a couple things, Classic Sports America, some studio stuff. When I was drafted into the rotation, I think I did every Sports Center there was for a while, but I looked 11 years old. But still, you know, you knew the rest of the anchors. You knew where they went to school. You knew about their families. You knew what sports they liked best. I think now the sheer scope of the company, the fact that Sports Center is around the clock, it takes place in different buildings, different shifts. This this is pre-COVID when there, there no one sees anyone in Bristol now. But even then, it had grown so big that it, you can't have what what existed when we were young. We were no. there. The camaraderie. The, the learning from the elder statesman. Sometimes it was tough love. Yeah. I mean, you get the, yes. I mean, you, the great Tom Mees or, or Berman. I was in awe watching Chris Berman do Sports Center in person. If you think you saw something Correct. on your television, you had to see it in person. Yeah. The stacks <laughs> of wire copy when, when such a thing existed yeah. and shot sheets and scripts in total disarray complete disarray of the floor space on the desk. He had 80%. You had 20. <laughs> you, you want, you looked over at this, how in the hell can he execute this show? Yeah. So beautifully. It, it, it's like savant type stuff. And that was a great way to learn. And, and, and that's how, oh, that's how sports has passed along. Right. Um, you know, Sterling Sharp, who I worked with another character who I worked yep. with for many years. Sterling was always fond of saying, look, just because, you used a urinal in the San Francisco 49ers offices doesn't mean that you know the West Coast offense, right? He, he dressed it up a little differently. Than As I only did. Sterling but, can put it, yes. As but only I, Sterling I, yeah. could, right. But, like, that was the point. Just because.
because you came in to do Sports Center didn't mean that you could be Chris Berman. And the people who survived, the people who thrived, and that's many talented people, and credit to, credit to people like Steve Anderson and John Walsh and Al Jaffe, who people may have gotten to know through, uh, the, I just forgot the name of the show, where um, uh, the, the, the show where all the talent. Oh, the fantasy show they try to get. Yeah, I forgot it too, but I know what you're talking God, about. Oh my gosh, I, I, I can't believe I just, I just forgot. Mike Hall, who's now on Big Ten Network for over a decade, Mike Hall was one of the winners of the show. Um, it, was, it was American Idol for Sports Center anchors. In any case, um, like the, the talent that was found <clears throat> was truly unique. And everybody couldn't be a Chris Berman copycat, but a lot of people figured out what their lane was, what their personality, what Oberman and Patrick did was brilliant, was absolutely brilliant. There's no way, though, that Chris Myers and I could follow and pull that off. So you kind of did what was in your personality and what was different. And, and that, that was, um, I, I, think, I think it helped us all learn how you had to have a little bit of, uh, a, a little bit of every club in the bag that you could play, but you had to have your own swing. You couldn't copy Berman's swing. You couldn't be Oberman. You, you, just, can't, you just can't do that. And... <clears throat> That, to me, is what helped our whole generation succeed and thrive. We, we would be different people in different times, like now. But for what it was back then, we're, I think we're all blessed that we not only had the place, but we all had each other to learn from, to push each other, to take the best of and put it in the way I do things. And I, I think that's why so many of us are lucky enough to still be doing this 25, 30 years after we started. Because you do it a long time... <clears throat> your career can stretch back to an era where you have a chance to intersect with legends. You're, you're going to host the Olympics in Tokyo. It's a thrill. The, the thing that first attracted me to this business or one of them, one of them was Jim McKay hosting the Olympics in 1972 when I was just almost 10 years old. But I vividly remember the catastrophic events, what happened with the Israeli athletes, Spitz, the U S basketball, all those things. And he brought such a humanity to it, but working with, with Jim McKay later in life when he was near his, the end of his arc and he was covering the triple crown races and Jack Whitaker and, yeah. and Dick Enberg, who I grew up watching call Wimbledon and, and everything about that place was filtered through Dick's sensibility, his work, getting to work with them. I mean, you mentioned some of the old sports center guys, but what's been an out of body experience for you yeah. or you, you someone that meant so much to you when you were a kid getting a chance to actually work with them. No, no doubt. Two, two things come immediately to mind, and they're the, the two individuals who primarily have been the Olympic host for America for, <clears throat> like you said, be better part of 50 years now. And that's not uh, including the years that CBS had the Olympics in, 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 a, in a winter spot a couple of times in the 90s. McKay, at the end of his run, also did a few British Opens with us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe maybe the most famous ending of a major championship in the history of golf or right up there with it is what happened to Jean Vandeveld at Carnoustie in 1999 with his triple bogey and all that stuff and those histrionics. So I'm on the air with Curtis Strange and we're facing this way with the 18th hole out in front of us. Jim McKay is doing some essays and bringing us on and off the air. And he is probably sitting behind us with a camera facing that way. And everybody in the booth there is watching, obviously. And now you're in, we're on the air for 27 minutes, I think it is, nonstop. And you're just into this moment. You've never seen anything like it. The late, great Bob Rossberg is on the golf course. Rossi and Curtis had exchanges between two golfers, the likes of which were just, you couldn't script any better. 
And we get done and we go to break and it turns out we're going to have a three-man playoff with Paul Laurie and Justin Leonard and Jean Vandeveld. And we'll be back after this message from your ABC station. And you just go, wow, what just happened, right? Tap on the shoulder. It's McKay who was sitting back there behind us. And he says, I don't know if you'll ever see anything like that in your career. And you did a great job. I'll never forget that wow, as long as I live. Yeah. Like the feeling that ran through my body was like, okay, good. Now let's, now let's go to the playoff. It's like, no, wait a minute. Jim McKay understood what I was going through at that moment and knew that that would matter to me. And I'll, that, gives, I'll never... that gives me shivers to hear that secondhand, yeah. man, because it's not about your preparation, not about the facts that you've culled and spit it out. It's about reacting in the moment to something that not only you haven't seen before, maybe has never happened quite that way in the yeah, history of never. golf before. There is no script for it. There is no blueprint for it. And, and to handle it beautifully and then get that seal of approval from guy who brought more humanity right to the job than anyone I've ever known that that's what was so and I'll tell you Mike it's not all warm memories too I mean we we saw these guys n- near the end of the career as they were still bringing valuable things to the broadcast the perspective yeah. the gravitas but there was a poignance to watching Jim and Jack work as well because there was Jim McKay doing some stand up on the backside of 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 Churchill Downs and wanting to have things sort of taped to the tripod so he wouldn't lose his way so he could navigate sure. through that. And, and I remember seeing that and, and filing that away and, you know, he, it was still a big part of the team, but it's like, wow, you know, time, time waits for no one. And, and all of us have to cope with, with that kind of thing. If we're lucky yeah. enough to hang around and be asked to do this at, right. at that age, right. Which I hope exactly. we are. Just, exactly. Because just his presence meant so much and Jack went the, the, the same way. And, uh, you know, we saw it with, with Dick Emberg, uh, just as you said, at Wimbledon. <clears throat> he came back to Wimbledon, as you, as you know. He was invited back and got to sit in the Royal Box and have a, have a wonderful visit. So that morning, uh, as you well know, there's a cadence to Wimbledon. And you get in early and you do the big production meeting with the, the entire group. Big, which is a story. big production meeting. Which big is, meeting. Which is <laughs> that's a podcast all of its own. <laughs> that, 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 that meeting is the, the Wimbledon meeting. If, if there's anything I missed, if somebody asks you, can you name three things at ESPN you missed? The meetings before the Grand Slam events in tennis the first week when everybody's in the room with their, with their schedules. It, it's the best. Um, in any case, I would like to take my, my uh, match notes, what you might do, the match on court two that you just got a sense maybe that'll end up being part of your late afternoon. And I'd like to go downstairs, have a cup of coffee quietly. And, and I don't know if that area is still there where, where the food was or broadcasters from around the world. And just kind of highlight my notes in peace and just kind of organize. And that morning, Dick Enberg was there and Dick comes down. He said, do you mind if I sit with you? I'm like, you know what? I'll be okay if I don't have the <laughs> Richard Gasquet note from Wimbledon six years ago. I'll, I'll be fine. And I just sat and he asked it. So how do you go about how do you go about preparing yourself for the day? And I was I felt like I was under exam. I felt like the professor was coming to check. Exactly. Okay. It was it was just really neat. And it was a curiosity. And what struck me to you the point that you made, like for us, this is now for people who watch, we talk on TV. It's a, for us, this is our life and our craft and our profession, and we're always trying to maximize it. And 
our preparation is what we feel gets us to the place where we can be comfortable on the air. We can be ourselves. We can get the most out of our analysts. And that's what made the greats great. And they all did it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And to have Dick Enberg ask me, let me see, how, how do you prepare? What, what, what do you go and do? And it was just reaffirming. He said, oh, that's a great idea. Um, that, that's, that's neat the way you did this. How, how'd you come up with this? And he, he probably didn't care. He, he probably could, could have cared less. But the curiosity, the professional care, those are the people we grew up. Those are the people who inspired us to do this and to be able to share those things with them. And then to see somebody like Dick Enberg, who was there as a fan, but you know, when he walked into that place, all he could think of were the times that he did Wimbledon over and over and over. And just this much, just vicariously living through you. You know, I, I, I do that when, when I watch you do the college football, when you're doing the championship game or, or some big game. We all get our chances, but you all, you're, you're watching the person doing it uh, to learn, to take away in a lot of ways, because a whole bunch of us now are friends, you're rooting for them to have a great game and just have this great open and just be in the perfect place. Uh, but you just know, like, that's a part of you in that spot. I know exactly what Chris is feeling. I know what he's thinking. I know, okay, like, is Herbie going to get this? And we're going to get this. Is the right stuff going to come up? Are they going to run out on time? We got to hit this. And it's like the 80 things that are going, like, there are very few of us who know what's going on in your mind. And I sit there and you watch that and you're like, damn, this is fun. This is cool. And to sit with one of the greats as we were going through that process was something that I, I remember vividly. I got to share very a house with Dick at Wimbledon a few times. The, they should have called it the odd quartet. Cliff Drysdale, the elegant South African veteran. Dick, Brad Gilbert. Right. I love him. Dear friend, one of the crazy characters. Won't stop talking. And, and Enberg and Gilbert in the same house where it was oil and water. Here I am just trying to like... But anyway, you, you brought up something that I wanted to talk about and I'm glad you did, which is some behind the scenes stuff that listeners to this might be surprised about because people presume there are rivalries and competition, but the people mm. who do this, there's a surprising level of, of respect, communication. I mean, you, you'll be doing games. We'll sometimes text. I, 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 we don't want to say how much during a game, but there are commercial breaks that are three minutes yeah, long, but certainly before a game, after a game. And, and I, I do this with, you know, Joe Tessitore, Sean McDonough, Steve Levy, and I had, had a thing going because we we called blowout after blowout this past season. Right. It was, we were threatening the record that his crew had. The average margin of victory in the games was 26 points. We were right on that record all season long. So what's so neat, Mike, is that it's not just – sometimes it's producers. Other people work for other networks. Yes. It's, it's, hey, have a great game. You did a great job with that call. Or, I know it's, it's kind of – it's really cool. I don't think that existed – in other eras, maybe to the degree that it does now, I, people talk yeah. about the late night wars with Letterman and Leno. Now the guys who do those shows late at night on, on the different networks are, are friends. They communicate. Right. And that's, it's neat that we have that kind of group in, in broadcasting now. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's, it's helped build in part because there are more jobs. There were only a few gigs when it was the three networks and no real ESPN uh, presence, right? And we just look at the volume of sports that's, that are on TV now compared to then, right? Yeah. So uh, whether it's you know, Al or Jim Nance or um, Mike Breen, uh, yeah. oh, that, that, whole, that, whole, that whole group, Dan Hicks, you, me, like, you know, I, I, consider, I consider all the, all the people I just named friends. 
and you kind of communicate on a regular basis, uh, you know, whether it's a text on Christmas or you see it's their birthday or a game or, or, some, or something like that. Um, I, I love that camaraderie. And the fact that we help I, each other out. I mean, you, you, you obviously do Notre Dame games. We did a couple this year and you were so generous with the information that you had on the Irish, that really only somebody that's around the team a lot can get. Me parachuting in a couple times a year, yeah, we have relationships, but it's not the same as when right. you're around the team. Incredibly helpful. It happens from, from you know, other networks within the network. It's, it's so neat. Yes. And, and I, I, I think you're right. It, it used to be competitive, and it, and it still is. We, we want to have a better broadcast in our studio on Sunday nights, and we'll do Football Night in America, than Fox did or CBS did, but you know, there's there's a text that goes around at the start of the year. The before the first pregame show on week one, I text uh, Rich Eisen and all, J, JB at CBS and Kurt Menefee at Fox and Sam Ponder at ESPN, and we all text each other. And we're on a text chain, and as Susie I've included on the hosting the Monday Night Countdown show, and just like, hey, have a great season, and we'll check in during the year, and it's. It's just fun, I think, because we all appreciate uh, the fans very often don't differentiate network to network. They're coming for the games. They may enjoy our studio shows. But we have a respect for what the business takes right now, the challenges that are out there, but also the, the support. Because uh, there are not many people who understand what we do. Yeah. Again, like I said before, we're not doing a lot. It's not very hard. But we are a few who understand the pressures, the difficulties, the challenges, and to have that support network of, of peers is kind of cool. Love and respect you, but I want you to have a terrible game when you're head-to-head. You guys end up <laughs> having an NBC, the game of the college football season. Clemson-Notre Dame, regular season game in South Bend. Ends up being this overtime classic. We've got some Pac-12 game head-to-head. So Kirk and I are basically watching your game in a monitor. Where yeah, We know what kind of what's going on in the field. But – it's a way down on the significance meter. And so we were texting, you know, I mean, we're, we're in a black hole where you guys are, the world is watching this game. So yeah. you do wish that when you're head to head, I wish that your game was over in the first quarter. We, we, we'd send those kind of same, texts. Same thing. Oh, we, we, no, hey, have, have a great, have a great game until the first quarter. And then hopefully it's 28, nothing. And like, we welcome you guys. Come on over. I, I think, I think it was a world series. We did a world series opposite of Monday night game. And uh, <laughs> I, I remember joking with Joe Buck, like, you know, sh- should I say thanks, Joe? Or I think Joe said, should I say thanks, Mike, when your game gets to halftime? Yeah. People are just going to sit there and click over, click over. Look, we, we know the viewers' patterns. We're, we're viewers, too. God, we're, we're not on the air. We're home. We're home being fans just like everybody else. I wonder if you have a story. I'm not going to bog this down in thoroughbred racing. Not as many listeners connect with yeah. that sport as others. But you were in that seat. For Derby 145, a couple of years ago, when something happened, working, by the way, with, with good friends of mine, Jerry Bailey, Randy Moss, with whom I worked at ABC. I, I love those guys. They're, they're, How they're great are they? Truly. Oh. And it's, it's a good thing that they were great because you had yes. to orchestrate <laughs> one of the all-time unscripted television tap dances. I want to say it went 21, 22 minutes from the time that Maximum Security crossed the line first. Yes. And the yes. stewards had their endless debate where they're going to make history and take down the horse that crossed the finish line first in the Derby, which had never happened. Do you have a story from that? Because that was just, that is, that is like the Vandeveld situation. You will never see something quite mm-hmm. like that again. And you're out there on, on a very thin tightrope at that point. Yeah. The, the story, the story from that, that, that sticks out perhaps more than any other is the fact that it was raining. 
So <laughs> in, in addition to everything else, like now, you, as you know, when you do these events outside the elements, you'll have a set and, and now like the rain stripping down on the side of the set. So your concentration is all, is all over the map. But I would say the, the on-air part, uh, Rob Highland is our producer and he's uh, lucky enough to work with Rob on our Notre Dame football games and football night in America and the triple crown. So over my you know five years now at NBC, we've gotten to know each other really well and you know the cadence of a producer, right? Uh, so we're in the interviews and our interviews are kind of moving around. We've done one on horseback with Donna Brothers and then Kenny Rice is doing an interview. And as Kenny's doing the interview, the second question comes up, Rob, so I hear Rob, and when, when the producer talks to you, some folks think producers or directors talk to us all the time. They, they don't. Uh, but The good ones don't. <laughs> the good ones are trying to well said. You, you can always sense when they open up their key. So they have a button that they can hit. And you can hear even just a little small difference in background noise in your ear. And I heard Rob's key open up. And all he said was, just hang with me for a minute. And I'm like, okay, something's going on. And then the cascade, mm. the cascade begins. And um, I, I would, I would say the conversation was interesting because we were trying to get to the right, we couldn't find the right spot for where the inquiry essentially was going to send 20 around. horses in a, in a, basically a stampede, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. And, and as you know, the Derby is, you know, a race unlike any other because of the 20 horses and the stampede and there's always jostling and bumping. So it's, it's figuring out all of that. And as you said, Jerry Bailey and Randy Moss are so good. And Rob has done the Derby for over a decade. And there are other people who are in our production truck, like Amy Zimmerman, who are around horse racing all the time. So everybody's got a sense. So they're all trying to get to the right spot. So in football, we know right away, catch, no catch. Well, it's that foot right there. It takes us eight seconds. We know what we're focusing on. So as everyone's focusing, I know it, not everyone on our set is listening to what I'm saying. <laughs> so I'm trying to, you're trying to get their attention. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I'm about to ask you a question. Stay with me here for a couple of seconds. So there's a lot of, I'd love to see the camera of all of our hand gestures and trying to get each other's attention through all of that. And then the wait, there's one point during the wait where I wasn't sure because I haven't done horse racing for 30, 40 years. I wasn't sure. And then I just kind of got to that point as I'm going through my mind. Like, there's never been anything like this. Like, you, 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 you don't want to overstate this is landmark territory. But now I'm like, okay, this is... But you have to. That's one of your obligations is to say, hey, right. folks, this is something you might never see again. Exactly. Pay attention. And, and the interesting part was when we went back and looked, viewership went up. And that's the power of social media. Like, what the hell happened to the Derby? What's going on? I don't know. And now people start turning it on. So now it's like at some point in the middle, I go back and go, okay, for those of you just tuning in here, you're waiting for a hockey game and all, all this stuff. So now now we're doing all Now that. it's like Dateline, Mike, where they come out every break and they recap what's happened over the previous 91 minutes here. Like It's maddening, but you have to do it because you know the audience is growing. <laughs> you, 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 you do. And I just remember it ending and it just felt so empty it was mm. just it, it it didn't it you Jerry, mean the result Jerry, or for you the experience the, of doing it felt the res, empty the result yeah great point the result we have to, you have to just, express why country house a horse that was not at all affected 
by what maximum right. security. But, but the That's arcane it. Kentucky racing rules deemed that country house was yes. not going to be the answer. How do you explain that to people? It's it's they that, don't yeah. That's the odd thing because country house is right around the horses where the yeah. jostling happens, yet not affected, but ends up being the largest beneficiary. And it it gave it gave power to what Jerry kept saying, or it was Randy who kept saying that you know really maximum security was the best horse. So do you go by the letter of the law and the rule and what you saw there, or does common sense go and go? You know what? Maximum security was the best horse. We should we shouldn't take them down here. It was. Um, it was a fascinating experience capped by we didn't go back last year because the Derby wasn't in May. It was right. in the fall, in September, I should say. And we did that from the studio. So I have not been back inside Churchill Downs since then until a month from now uh, for, the, for the Derby, which is a May 1st Derby this year. So it's going to be weird going back there because that was one of those odd, bizarre days that started in sunshine, ended in rain. We started out in the paddock. You end up inside you're sitting on the sets for six hours it's, those are those are the cool days when you go back and think about them absolutely yeah that's great stuff i mean you, you do leave churchill downs with the feeling you've seen a piece of history but that was a year like unlike any other and 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 hollow and empty those are good words speaking of shocking results jump back to tennis here you you come from queen so working the u.s open i know was a very special experience for you yeah and um we, just to tell people, when you document a match, I'm not, maybe you know where I'm going with this. When you document a match, you got to be right down the middle. You have to celebrate whatever happens. Sometimes the person who loses it is a bigger story, but you have to celebrate the winner. But when you're covering a tournament and you're not calling the match, you certainly are interested in getting the best storylines to play out for the biggest matches. The viewers want Serena to win. They want Roger Rafa to win so that they can be around for the end. We very much in 2015 wanted Serena Williams to be there in the final because she was going for the calendar grand slam, which is truly all the things she's done. She hadn't done that. Nobody really had done that. Steffi Graf had done it, but it it had been a long, long time in the semifinal. She takes on Roberta Vinci. You're calling the match. Roberta Vinci has booked a flight home to Italy. Roberta Vinci has not been able to hang with Serena. She's basically a clay court specialist playing on a hard court. Serena wins. I think it was 33 Grand Slam matches in a row, heavily favored. All you've got to do, Tariko, (laughs) is get Serena past Roberta Vinci so that the world can have a chance to watch her go for the Grand Slam on Saturday in New York, and you couldn't do it even though Serena won the first set, 6-2. It was up a break in the third. You couldn't get Serena over the finish line. So I can't believe I, 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 I remember you in the booth was was your semifinal yes, after ours? After, yeah, right. So so just to set it Simona for people, Halep, Flavia Panetta, yes. Yeah, right, right. Just to, <laughs> just to set it for people. I mean, you've got the booth, and at the U.S. Open, it truly is a hockey line change. It's okay, great. So and so wins. That's great. They'll be out on the set with Chris yep. McKendry right after this, and then you're taking your stuff and you're getting out because the next two are coming in to do the next match. So you and Chrissy are getting ready to do the next match. So. One player wins the first set. You're like, okay, this is probably going to go in like 14, 15 minutes. I need to kind of get my coffee, get my notes, get, get just be ready to jump in, right? And then Roberta Vinci starts this this comeback, <laughs> this unbelievable comeback. And <laughs> poor poor Chris, because you because you're uh, look, we all love to be a part of history. That's one of the things because yes. we talk about history in sports forever. So you've got a chance to call a piece of history and. 
it's not just your voice being a part of it, but it's you getting to be in the moment. It's the closest thing we have to competing. We get to be a part of something like this, right? I and wanted to see her do it, though. I mean, I, listen, I mean, yes. I, you're 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 truthful, but I more wanted to see Serena do it. She deserved to do it. Tennis needed it. The fans. I mean, I, to, in fairness, I mean, whether I get to call it or not. Um, no, no doubt. But no doubt. But the bottom line is, 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 she's so close, and it's up to her. Just don't yes. <laughs> don't succumb to the nerves, and you've got this. You know, this is your podcast. It's about you. So. <laughs> So, so like now, now this is going on. Now it's getting real. Now Roberta Vinci's hitting shot after shot, passing shot, and she is just totally emotionally invested in this match. And it's a pro Serena crowd, but now you're getting some people who are like, "Wow, this is a pretty good match." We get to a third set, okay. And Mary Jo Fernandez, I'm working the match with Mary Jo, and I, I just remember looking over at Mary Jo a couple of times because it was one of those matches where uh, there was so much good ambiance and noise in the stadium. You didn't have to do much, right? And as things would get more tense and tight, Mary Jo's eyes would get bigger and bigger. And then like, you'll go over Mary Jo like, wow, like she's in trouble now. This this is getting real here. And it was, you could just feel the pressure of it, right? And it was a, one of the great upsets of all time that felt like a letdown. Right? You did a great <laughs> and, job, Doc. You, you were very fair. I mean, Vinci w- w- was a... a, a Interesting personality. As you said, even yes. in a pro Serena card, she was winning people over, putting her hand to her ear, asking for right. crowd support. And plus, she was just running down every ball. So she was gutting it out. The New York audience appreciated it. But but still, at the end, you, you celebrate her win and you realize, oh, yeah. we're, we're, we're never going to get to see a calendar <laughs> slam, are we? <laughs> no, no, no. Right. So, and then she does an interview with Rinaldi on the court, which was, it was like, here's Serena. She's lost. That opportunity is gone try to frame that moment. Now the winner, and, and here's Tom, and her interview with Tom was, was Roberta Vinci. It was personality. It was her Italian passion for life. It was, it was great. It connected. Even the fans who were disappointed at what happened couldn't help but like her when it was done, right? The interview. Yeah. So it kind of great. What a moment. This is great. And you'll hear from her on the set. And then the second semifinal, Chris and Chrissy will have that come up. And we're going to break. And you're just like, you're over my shoulder like, Oh man, <laughs> you like, gotta be kidding me! You, you know, gotta be how, could, how could you not deliver? All I needed you to do was close the match out, and you, you couldn't. And, that's, it's and then the, I had the, the joy of scenes. calling uh, uh, Roberta Vinci Flavia Panetta in the final, <laughs> which is a tremendous match if you're in Italy, but uh, not what we had expected. And uh, now, listen, I mean, you, listen, we. I'm kidding. We celebrate it. It's you have to celebrate every championship moment. You're lucky enough to call whatever the sport. Yes, it means so much to those involved. The joy, the culmination of a dream, all the work they put into it. You try to get that across to the audience, and that's why mm-hmm. we tune. In. That's why I got choked up watching the Dodgers win the World Series in the weirdest of seasons. I don't like the Dodgers at all, but I respected yeah. what they had come through. I tuned in to watch. Uh, the World Series and especially the clinching game because we just celebrate kind of those championship moments. And when you're mm-hmm. calling it, you can't quite allow yourself to feel that. You have to sort of, you want you want it to come through, right? But you got to temper it. But that's why we love sports is those moments. So, real, real quick one. The Red Wings are this close to winning the Stanley Cup against Pittsburgh. We live in Michigan. My wife's from there. We've lived there since uh, the late 90s. I've never seen the Cups skated in person. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. So it's, here's the, the game five. The Wings are going to close out the Penguins. There's three minutes left. The Wings are up one. And we're fifth row behind the goal. I'm with three buddies at the Joe, the old Joe Louis Arena. 
three minutes left. Everybody watches the whole third period on their feet. You know what those buildings are like. Oh, yeah. Nobody sits down. They're cheering. It's just, the Penguins score with a minute two left to send it to overtime. The game goes to multiple over, overtimes, as only the old Joe Lewis Arena can. They've run out of all caffeine. There's no soda. There's no coffee available. But you can get a 24-ounce beer between the second and third overtime. It's like, come on, boys. Here we go. Because if they win, we'll celebrate. It's like one in the morning, and the Wings will skate the cup. Penguins score. Don't get to see the cup skated. Wings win two nights later in Pittsburgh on a Friday night, win the cup. So I still haven't seen the cup skated, going around, whatever. Now I'm working with NBC. I get to work on some of the pre- and the post-game for the cup final, a a couple of the games. So game seven, St. Louis, Boston in Boston road team has won every game. We're at Boston. The blues win game seven. Shockingly, they win the cup. Great. We're down in a green room, a a spare locker room. We got to wait for the Bruins to come down because their locker rooms passed us. So I kind of like cracked the door open to watch the Bruins off camera. Nobody sees this. Just watch the just devastation on their faces. They just lost game seven of the cup final at home just to see what they looked like and how stunned they were walking through. It was pretty interesting. Then they clear out. The hallway's cleared. I'm not on the air. Doc Emmerich's going to take us off the air. Doc and Edzo will do the rest of NBC. Then they'll do the post game on NBCSN, and everybody skates with the cup. I sneak out. I was standing on the Bruins bench. Not on the bench, but like the space where you walk onto the bench and got to watch the Blues skate the cup. And it was the coolest thing because like you just said, and that's why I think why we still love doing this, the true passion, these athletes, this is their moment. This is what these guys, Jay Bomeister and all these guys, this is what they, their whole lives Mm -hmm. wanted to do, work, sacrifice, parents driving them to morning skates, cold rinks. This was the moment. And to see the guys, their eyes as their hands got on the cup, that's the stuff that, makes me love this job and love what I do so much and feel really like you do so fortunate that we get to share those moments, sometimes frame those moments. Sometimes we are the narration for the visual of those moments that people will go back and watch 10 or 20 years later. And when, when uh, Clemson or Bama or Ohio state are handed the trophy, you want to make sure that in 20 years, when they go back and watch that tape, that your words fit the moment. And that is exactly what you're talking about how that's something that just keeps us going and makes us work hard to do the right thing for the event and for the people not necessarily for us yeah beautifully said and we're both perfectionists so sometimes what we do end up saying to match those amazing moments doesn't meet our own standards and there's no taking it back you just live with it you move on i i don't beat myself up anymore but it but sometimes you would you know another line another word would have made that better but that's the nature of it you get just like kind of when you're playing you get one chance to do it right and to, to to punctuate that moment um have you had a chance to ever reflect what you've been able to do you've been able to to cover golf in the era of tiger NFL in the era of Brady and Manning and Breeze and so many others, Kobe and LeBron calling yep. NBA. I don't know. I don't think you were a little bit yep. too late for Jordan. Jordan had retired by the time Mr. you got there. Yeah, but, I actually got the back end, the back end of Jordan, Jordan two in Washington. Okay. So well, the then college I, not, Jordan Washington game, I consider his career right. to end when he was a bull, but, I, yeah, I know, I know. but then we talked about in Serena yes. and Roger yes. and Rafa in tennis. Yep. I mean, just the gratitude that I'm sure we share for being around and being able to see that and never taking that for granted for a day. Yeah. I, you're right. Uh, 
do count myself lucky for I just the I just scratched the surface, man. You've done there's other things you've done. Yeah. I just named just no, the no, name no, four no, sports. No. Yeah. Ten ten thousand percent. I'm with you. And and what it what it made me think of right away was uh I get asked often, what players do you like to talk to? Or what players are the best in meetings, right? And I, I say to folks that my favorite meetings with players, so there's some that you enjoy, but the meetings that are the ones that you walk away and go, okay, that that guy's wired differently. That woman is different than the others who I cover is that all these great athletes see sports to me differently than the others do. In addition to their physical abilities, which are extraordinary, their minds are powerful, uh, very broad and wide in the scope of what they take in and their ability to take the mental and match it with the physical. Like if you, if you ask me what, what football meetings do you look forward to uh, for NFL games? Peyton, when he was playing, Brady, Rodgers, Breeze. Like th- those guys, you just have a different quality of meeting with them. It's because they mentally do it so well. And I, it was the same thing with, uh, God rest his soul, Kobe's last game was a game that it was uh, me, Hubie, and Lisa Salters got to call in mm-hmm. L.A. And Kobe sat with us for a half hour. Ed Fibershoff was our producer. Eddie had covered Kobe all the way back in his uh, early days. Uh we sat with, with Kobe for like 25 to 30 minutes and talked about career, life, everything else. And he really, he, he said, I don't know what I have in me tonight. I don't, you know, and he ended up having an incredible game that, you know, you were reminded the mentality of the athlete and their mental approach to it. He knew exactly how much he had in the tank. And if he got going, he could he could get to what that very 50, last drop. He had fifty or sixty in the tank, right? What are you- <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Hubie said, "You know, I, I had a, I had a I had a dream. I was shaving. And I remembered my dream. I, I I thought I thought Kobe could have like a 50, 60 point kind of game, and he threw that out like in the first quarter. And Kobe's going through. I, I told you, I told you. It was it was one of those. But it's the athletes, the the athletes who are so smart, and mm-hmm. that's what I've learned to appreciate about LeBron." You talk to LeBron about basketball, oh my gosh, it, it's a master class. He sees so much. That's why he's an unbelievable assist guy and rebounder, and he's made so many teams so much better over the years. And that's what uh, I feel so fortunate is not just be able to call the events that these folks have been involved with, but to hear what makes them so great. And it's an understanding as <clears throat> the, uh, the axes cross between ability and mental acuity, the greats are able to maximize it longer because they know how to get the most out of their body. They know how to handle situations. Like Tiger winning the Masters in 2019 at 44, uh, 43 at that, that time, excuse me. I mean, that, that was stunning given what he had gone through physically. But Tiger's mental approach around Augusta and on the second nine on Sunday, when they got to the 12th and all the other guys hit it in the water, and Tiger ended up over the bunker, middle of the green, made three, and he just played smart golf while everybody else tried to go win the Masters. And his mental ability is the reason he won that Masters. And just to be able to tap into that briefly every once in a while is what I take away from the best of the best in this era of great athletes. Great point. Not just what happens on Mike, but what happens in the preparation that's priceless that you can't, you can't duplicate. Maybe because you're a great 
host, broadcaster, play-by-play guy, or maybe he was wired together. You brought it back to Tiger. You're sitting there in Augusta. I want to finish with a guy who will not be playing the Masters, obviously, but a guy who is fortunate to be alive after his car accident. Mm -hmm. And the question that's going to be on so many minds as the Masters unfolds, as we record this, the tournament hasn't happened yet. The back, the foot, the ankle, the things he's got to heal from to get back. Yes, Ben Hogan did it. It was a very different era. The competition around him was nowhere near what Tiger has to face. So Tiger getting back and being able to play golf at a high level and then trying to win another Masters, another major. What do you think, Mike? I mean, it's going to, you're, you ask this a lot, I'm sure, but people are interested in, yeah. in as we mm-hmm. as we another Masters comes around, he will not be there, sadly, except in spirit. Yeah, yeah you know, um, it, we have been asked a lot and your immediate thought connecting the dots is no uh because of the age and the back and it was a leg injury that was so severe it took weeks to get him back even to the state of florida right and we don't know all the details of it um i i do have this very cautionary uh, light bulb that goes off every time this conversation comes up to never doubt him because uh i i think i have i think other people have and we've seen uh, we've seen different results. He's been able to overcome so much uh, on and off the course over the years. Uh, I do think it's selfish to even think that way right now, while it's a natural sports question, because he's given us as golf fans and the sport and the industry so much. I, I personally think a lot of my success professionally is thanks in part to Tiger's success because Tiger turns pro in the fall of 96. I got the job doing ABC's golf in January of 97. Uh, The first tournament I did was Tiger winning what I believe was his third tournament of his career at that point, the Mercedes championships uh, at La Costa in San Diego. And then he goes to win the masters that next April, uh, Jim Nance's great call win for the ages. And then he wins his next start in Dallas, at the Byron Nelson a month later. And we're on the call for that uh, on ABC. So that's like the era where out of nowhere, people are paying attention to golf. And I had just gotten the job. Brent was the lead voice for golf for ABC. They reworked the booth. Roger Twibel was in there for a little bit as well. It became uh, me, Curtis Strange, Ian Baker Finch joined us a few years later, Steve Melnick, Judy Rankin, Bob Rosberg, uh, it was just a time when for some reason, so many more people, and the reason was Tiger, so many more people were paying attention to golf. And I was lucky to be surrounded by great people on the air, a great production group led by Jack Graham and Jim Jeanette, uh, veterans of the Olympic world over the years in the truck. Uh, Mark Loomis, who went on to be a sensational producer at Fox doing the U.S. Open. He was, our, he was one of our main, uh, uh, main assistants in terms of the production of the broadcast. I was just surrounded by people who didn't let me fail and kind of steered me in the right place. And I think any of us who were around golf at that point were elevated because of Tiger. And uh, that went on for a while. So the association with the sport, when it got big, uh, I'm so appreciative of Tiger's dedication, his success, uh, his beyond the sports world stardom that gave us the opportunity to be seen by so many more people that Chris, for me, I don't need to see Tiger hit another shot in competition again. Like he's given me as a sports fan and as a professional more opportunities uh, to help my life and help my family go forward. And um, I just want to see him enjoy his kids, be able to go out, play 
golf with his son, uh, be able to watch his daughter play soccer, do whatever they're going to do as teenagers and young adults, and to find some happiness and peace in his life. And for me, if, if I don't ever see him, you know, get announced on a first tee and hit a tee shot, I'm, I'm over, overloaded with uh, appreciation for what he's given us as an athlete over these years. Yeah, wonderfully said. If it's not important to him, if he's not driven to get back and try to do more, if he's quite content and satisfied with the aspects of your life that you talked about, then I hope that's okay. If that's not the case, you just don't want him to go out not on his terms. You don't want any athlete who's been as great as he has been, contributed as much as he has, built up the fan base to not be able to go out on their terms. So I hope if he wants to come back, if he's driven to do that and put in the hard work, and I'm told by people who are surgeons and physical therapists, how much that's going to take yeah. to get back to that level of golf. It's, it's an incredibly challenging thing ahead of him. If he wants to do it, I hope he gets the chance to do it and he doesn't go out uh, on, on terms that they're not his. So hey, he's I, always, he's always been the guy to do the work. And I've always said to folks that, uh, you know, the, the, when you get to the top of the mountain, the dismount is never graceful, right? Yeah. It's very hard for people to scale down the top. Look, we're seeing it with Serena. We'll see it with Fed and with Nadal, Djokovic. Eventually, at some point, all these greats will – they're not what they were. They're still so darn close. They're, they're gracefully coming down from the top of the mountain about as well as any individual athletes ever do. It's just hard. It's just hard because in your mind, Tiger's the best. And what you see is not the best. And it would be hard to see him less of that. But as you said, if that's what he wants and that's going to drive him, I, I always tell people when they ask, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to be like? What wakes you up? Right. Does, does doing sports on TV wake you up? Do you, do you want to? Yeah. Then great. Go do it uh, with tiger. If he wants to go through the rehab to find a way to get out there and play one more masters and two, three or whatever it might be, man, let, let's go. Let, let's, let's go. I'll, I'll be privileged to be around to watch the ride and be rooting for him to do whatever he wants to do. There are limits to your time, even on a quarantine day in Augusta. You've been very generous. We could go on for six hours and people would be listening or not listening, but we'd, we'd have a great time doing it. I hope as Augusta moves past the calendar, you get the Triple Crown, uh, Stanley Cup coming up, and then, of course, the primetime hosts of the uh, Summer Olympics in Tokyo, which will be uh, quite unique and bizarre in their own way. I hope you have many more of those out-of-body experiences, stop <laughs> the world, yeah. Be grateful and then document it beautifully. I, I think you will. And I'll be Thanks. watching and keep your phone open because I, you just might get a text when you don't expect it. <laughs> Any, anytime, especially from you, like one of the greatest, one of the greatest uh, joys in, in my career and life uh, has been being friends with you uh, since 1991, since I got to Bristol. And uh, it, it's just been really cool and fun to watch. It's nothing like, nothing like seeing people who do it the right way and who you, who you love dearly. Uh, enjoy what they're doing. Mike Tirico, gracious as always. That sounded like an abrupt edit, by the way. It's because I typically like to cut out the over-the-top compliments. Not always so comfortable with that. I don't know why. I do appreciate our long friendship. I appreciate the example of Mike's excellence. And when I'm a viewer like you, I just appreciate the skills that he brings no matter what he's doing. As always, grateful to my co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster, and producer Jason Weichel. Invite you to subscribe and leave feedback on the podcast at my Instagram at Chris Fowler. I'll talk to you soon.